Hello and welcome to Where Do We Begin? My name is Rowan Connolly. I'm a journalist, commentator and social media provocateur. And today we're having a chat about my footyology brand, my experiences in the industry over a fair period of time uh, and a whole lot of other stuff besides. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Rowan. My name's Harper. My co-host is Lockie. How are you, Lockie? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. And I'm super keen to get into our next uh, guest. Yeah, yeah. And uh, first studio interview for uh, about four or five months, I reckon. So super pumped with this episode with Rowan Connolly. Should we get straight into it? Yeah, let's dive in. All right, and now a guest we've had on the podcast before, as I said on that last episode, he's a real journalistic idol of mine, but uh, and it's no different this time, so I'd like to welcome onto the show Rowan Connolly. How are you, Rowan? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Harper. They say, don't meet your heroes, so Rowan, I know you'll be nervous, but I'll go easy on you, mate. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's funny that I was saying, isn't it? I, I've been very fortunate, actually, that it, I've got to meet... A number of mine, and I'd say ninety-nine percent of them have been, you know, pretty decent people. Um, so yeah, hopefully um, you'll think that of me once I leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we did have a good chat uh, off air. I think we went on for maybe an hour or so off air in the last episode we had. But anyway, yeah, I do that. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> no, that's no. what we love here. And yeah. I think we've got the first question. It's always the toughest one. But how's life going for you? How is everything? Uh, yeah, good, good. Um, it's been an interesting year for me. So um, I run my own media brand, if you like, Footyology. Um, I've done that now for three and a half years since I left the age. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been fascinating exercise. You know, I've had to learn a lot uh, of, you know, I'm, I'm not very, um, uh, as a rule, I'm not great about financial stuff and whatever. So I've had to learn a lot in that area. I've learned a lot about um, different forms of media and, and uh, you know, producing stuff and designing stuff. Um, and this year's been particularly interesting because I decided to expand the breadth of the Footyology website. So we're no longer just a website that talks about football. We um, write about politics and society and uh, music, movies, TV. And on that basis, I applied for a grant um, from a philanthropic organisation called the Judith Nielsen Institute, which funds journalism projects. And um, for, very fortunately, and huge thanks to them, they showed a bit of faith in me and I got a grant. And It's awesome to hear. That enabled me to take on, you know, about half a dozen new writers and some really good ones. So if I'm correct, there's a couple like overseas, like in America. Yep. yep. Good got range a, there. Got a couple of American correspondents, uh, Martin Flanagan, who I think a lot of people think is one of the the best writers in the country. He's on board. Um, we've got Michelangelo Rucci, who's long been one of the best footy writers in the country. Um Shelley Ware, uh, leading um, female media voice and Indigenous voice, uh, Angela Pippos, Francis Leach, uh, Scott Goodings. Um, yeah, so it's been, look, it's been really exciting and it, it's the workload's increased as a result of that. But 
Um, I've been really energised by that. Um, we've continued to do the Footyology podcast um, and this year we decided to do some live streaming after Thursday and Friday night games, like a, a Twitter talk. I think Harper jumped on one of those live streams yeah, and made yeah, a comment. Yeah. Well, that's been great fun. Yeah, we call it Footyology Final Siren and um, we just, you know, it's like a – uh, a digital version of talkback radio, I suppose. People just, you know, send through questions and comments and finally goes off on his mad tangents as he's prone to do. And um, <laughs> we, we have, you know, we talk serious footy, but we have a bit of fun too. So, Which is what it's about. Yeah. Um, and plus, in addition to that, I've done some freelancing stuff to help pay the bills. Um, so funnily enough, whilst it's been a terrible year for, you know, with the pandemic and, it's been hard being sort of trapped in the house for so long or whatever. It's affected me negatively a lot less than it would some people. And in fact, in some ways I've prospered yeah. because of it. So yeah, I get that. I get that a hundred percent. Cause I know for me, like being able to like do stuff like the podcast, um, being able to, I guess, focus on uni a little bit more. Like there's definitely like, yes, it's been a hard year, but I definitely feel like I've been in the fortunate position like yourself in which, yes, has been negatives, but we have been fortunate enough that we haven't suffered as a lot, a lot of people out there listening, I'm sure have. Well, I think one of the, um, <clears throat> one of the ramifications of it is that, uh, and it's sort of a good thing, I think, people are, people are sort of working out what really matters to them um, and a lot of stuff that, clutter in their lives has sort of been swept away. But I think even things like people working from home, you know, a lot more people have discovered that that really is possible. And, look, I'd been doing that even before I left the age. I'd been doing that almost exclusively for about five years and I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I'd work so much better at home, Um, you know, less – I mean, you miss out on the socialisation and stuff, but you just get more done and Mm – you save time that you'd spend commuting. And um, so I, I think, you know, as a result of the pandemic, a lot of social and work practices particularly could really change dramatically and there might be some real benefits out of that for people. Yeah, I think uh, people have really kind of found out what they truly enjoy uh, during the pandemic and during obviously this long lockdown we've had in Melbourne. But I've got to ask, have you enjoyed the Furiology ride for the whole three and a half years that you've been doing it? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, most of it. I mean, the. I guess I don't want people to think, you know, I sort of left the edge and I had this grand master plan or something. <laughs> it really wasn't like that. I I was quite happy to stay at the age. What happened was um, at the time I left, the whole ownership of the company was in serious doubt. You know, they were still looking for a buyer. Um, and there were some grave doubts about whether the pretty generous um, redundancy packages that were on offer and had been for a while would survive. Um, so I spoke to my accountant about it and, um, you know, in the end it was sort of like I couldn't afford not to take a package because I'd been there 30 years. So I got a you know I got a fair bit of money out of it, yeah. um, but I, I wanted to keep doing what I'd been doing. So Footyology, the website, was just a means of yeah. Where did that idea for the website sort of come from? Well, just there, uh, just that it gave me a platform to put my writing on, you know. Mm. And I, I was reasonably confident I'd pick up writing gigs elsewhere, but I wanted to sort of be master of my own destiny, you know, and be able to write exactly what I wanted and get other people 
to do stuff as well. We were already doing the podcast, so it was natural to go off the back of that. Um, and, yeah, look, I, I feel like the footyology name has a bit of traction now. People, at least in the sporting world, are, are aware of it. And yeah, I think Definitely, definitely. I think a lot more people are becoming aware of it now and it's really starting to build up now, like that brand. And I think yeah. people, as well as the fact that, like, with the scholarship, you're getting really quality riders on as well, of course, yourself. So it's definitely oh, building no, traction on, up there. On the hack, mate. <laughs> but, um, no, it's probably a good point here to plug for uh, subscribers. I mean, in – we still need to fund it, you know, if we're going to keep growing. So one thing we did was link up with Patreon, which is a American um, writer's platform really and people become patrons of a a writer or a website or whatever and, and they support it financially. And, um, yeah, it's a bit of a slow burn that and I I understand that entirely. You know, it's you don't want to part with your money unnecessarily, but I think gradually more people are getting on board. So if anyone hears this and <laughs> checks out the website and likes what they see, you can. there's plenty of links there where you can become an official footyology patron. The one thing I haven't done is put anything behind a paywall, which you can do, um, and I was sort of going to, and then I thought, you know what, like, I, let's see. I want to keep it free. I want people to have access to it all. Let's see if enough will appreciate that and think, well, that's worthy of five bucks a month, you know, and get on board that way. And so far, I feel like they have. You know, if things get desperate, I'll probably put stuff on the paywall. But um, they're the sort of decisions you've got to weigh up. And um, Yeah, how have you found making those decisions? Because obviously now you're your own boss, you're running your own platform. Like you said, you're doing all the financials and stuff. Have you found that aspect tough because it's like it's all on you or have you sort of like you've enjoyed it, you've enjoyed that responsibility? No, I hate it. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I hate doing the financials. Oh. I mean, it's, just, it's, just, it's just boring. Yeah. I, feel, I feel like I'm talking to my accountants every five <laughs> minutes, you know, and they're, they're good people. Don't get me wrong if you're listening, guys. But Yeah, I'm studying accounting. I'm a bit hurt by that. <laughs> it, it's just oh, – that it just bores me. Look, I'm, I've got an older sister who um, ran uh, Film Australia. She was the CEO of Film Australia for a long time, so – I rely on her for a bit of business expertise, um, but small steps at the moment. You know, if it's if it gets bit, well, if hopefully when it gets bigger, um, you know, these are things I'm going to have to become even better versed in. But it, look, it's all learning experience, and and actually, even before I left the age, one of the great changes in journalism is the amount of things you have to be across now. You know, so. For probably eighty percent of my career, I was a print journalist, and yeah. um, actually not eighty percent, probably half. You know, but yeah. I started doing radio, and then I did some TV, and then with the arrival of the internet, you know, I started doing a lot of more multimedia stuff, video and blogs, and this sort of stuff. It's remarkable how many newspaper journalists are still really slow to embrace that. But I think even they recognise now that, you know, you've got to have this diversity of skills. Otherwise, um, it's just too narrow a focus to be able to survive in the industry. Yeah. And it's an industry that, you know, in some ways it's in a lot of trouble. The business models are breaking down. We're seeing, um, you know, a proliferation of sort of agenda-driven media. Um, this has been a real hobby horse of mine in the last couple of years, uh, News Corp and 
uh, Rupert Murdoch's sort of, you know, political um, <laughs> uh, desires, you know, seeking to influence politics in several countries, not just here. Um, and it's sort of a shame because I, I've always had a lot of regard for the Herald Sun until probably the last couple of years and uh, I just think the way they've handled themselves during the pandemic and before that during the bushfire crisis last summer, I thought on both those things they've been quite reprehensible to be honest, yeah. uh, quite irresponsible, uh, allowing people like Andrew Bolt to preach stuff that is contrary to acknowledged science, certainly with things like climate change. Um, but the pandemic, you know, we had this sort of catalogue of their columnists saying, you know, attacking the government for literally anything and saying, you know, the lockdown's stupid and we don't need to wear masks. And, you know, at the beginning people like Bolt were saying it was all a hoax and, you know, it's no worse than the flu. Well, see the figures in the US the last couple of days? Yeah. 3,000 people yeah. died in one day. It's horrible. And I think yesterday they had more than 200,000 cases reported. Yeah. So they're in absolute crisis. And I think where um, we're at now, Victoria particularly, is a uh, acknowledgement of we did the right thing. Oh, yes, I, there were mistakes along yeah. the way. I but just feel so lucky the fact that there's been zero cases for how many days? 35. 30, yeah. 35. Like how... Back in October, like even yeah. then, I, it's it's amazing. I don't think you can really criticise what the Victorian government's done because we're just so lucky that we get to enjoy Christmas with our friends, our family, and we get to come to like her own gets to come to our house and jump in the studio and exactly. go do our podcast. Like, yeah, yeah. And I just want to say personally, I reckon I've latched onto your work more since you started your own independent thing with Footyology in the last three and a half years or whatever you said. I've just I listened to the podcast, read some of your articles. Um. But obviously, uh, you were talking about the Murdoch um, kind of conglomerate. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, I, I reckon independent kind of media is one of the key parts to have like a kind of thriving democracy, you know. But do you reckon your view uh, on independent media organisations has developed more uh, since you've started your own or did you already have a view that they were like really crucial? crucial? I, I think we've seen <clears throat> we've seen what were the major media players, their influence has been reduced and their their power has been reduced, which in a way I think is a good thing. Um, we were already starting to see the growth of things like uh, The Guardian in Australia, um, The New Daily, which does particularly well. That only started five or six years ago. Um, things like I've always been a big fan of Crikey, which is a, you know, a news and politics um, source. Um, and then people like me, you know, there's a whole lot of journos like me who have started up their own sort of brands. And um, so the media, you know, it's becoming a lot more niche driven. You know, there's a lot of little niches and in a way it makes it, it makes it more of a task to find the right niches, you know, to find what interests you and to find, you know, reputable reliable sources of information. But I think once you do that, it's far more rewarding. So this is the thing, you know, like a, a, a broad newspaper like the Herald Sun or The Age, they're trying to please everyone. And in a way, by doing that, it means that their coverage of everything becomes a bit superficial, you know, uh, even in terms of volume. You know, can't please everyone. Yeah, well, 
and that you don't have the space to devote to it all. Whereas, um, it's funny because I've sort of done the same thing, but, you know, like there are politics, for example. I'm into politics. Well, I tend to go to Crikey. I tend to go to, and there's a couple of political blogs that people write that I go to, and they're informed, you know, they're specialists on that field, so they really know their stuff. Um, And I think in a way the, yeah, so in some ways I'm worried about where the media's at because the business models are breaking down and the advertising revenue is not there um, and funding it is always going to be an issue. But in terms of the um, scope, the, uh, the vast array of information we now have, thanks to the internet mainly, um, there's more information out there than there's ever been before. The downside of that is that you get phenomenon like fake news, you know. Like, yeah, do you and, and think social media has had a major impact on that and the change in the media and the fact that it's not like back in the day where you get your news either from the like, news at 6 o'clock at night or the newspaper the next day. Now it's just it's instantaneous. Something happens, you log on your phone, you log on to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and it's just there. Do you sort of think that's how reporting's changed as well as the fact that now because it can be reported so quickly, it's not about the story, it's about who can report it first? Um, well, there's a few elements yeah. there. I mean... Yes, the immediacy of news has never been greater and I think Twitter is the best platform for that. Um, I think it's been great in the way that people use Twitter as a news dissemination platform. So a lot of people I follow, they'll tweet links to all these stories and if I didn't have access to Twitter, I wouldn't know this stuff existed, you know, so someone tweets a story and says, this is a great piece on blah, 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 so I'll read it, and that furthers my knowledge of something. You know, So I think that part of it's fantastic. The last thing you mentioned there, that sort of race to be first, you know what, funnily enough, I think maybe it's just who you follow, whatever, but I find that that is probably more of an issue in football reporting than it is in politics or general news or, or maybe with, you know, sort of big... Um, global news stories, you know, when, say, there's a terrorist running loose on the streets or whatever, information can be very sketchy. <laughs> That's and, pretty useful, yeah. Um, you know, but that, that, yeah, that whole thing about being first, not being accurate, it seems to, I seem to hear about that more with football reporting than anything <laughs> else. I hope that's not a comment on the quality of the footage, journals, <laughs> but um, I've never been, I mean, you know, like, I've I've written plenty of news stories, but from reasonably early on, I gravitated more towards that um, writing opinion and comment and analysis and interviews, you know, features, long reads and stuff. And that gives me – that's always been more um, satisfying to me than breaking a big news story. Having said that, you know, the times I have – broken big news stories, it is exciting. There's no doubt about that. Um, and a couple of the biggest I've had in my career were news stories. This is going back to the year of mergers in 1996. Yeah, it's actually, I read an interesting article today about how you found out about the potential merge between Melbourne and Hawthorne. Do you want to talk about Oh, yeah. About where, that? Where'd you read that? I'm trying to remember where so that was. It was Sydney Morning Herald. Oh, I think, well, it must have been The Age originally and they're owned by the same people. So we'll okay. have a look at that. That was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. So what happened with that? So in 96, you had 
Firstly, you had, uh, like, Fitzroy was in all sorts of trouble and the AFL wanted them to go to Brisbane. Um, and Fitzroy were sort of desperately trying to avoid that. Um, but we, when I say we, I mean the Sunday Age, which back then had its own staff and I was on the Sunday Age, um, we broke the information about that North Melbourne Fitzroy attempted merger basically because a disaffected North Melbourne director who didn't want it to happen <laughs> picked up the phone and rang us um, and then I put it on the Fitzroy president, Dyson Hall-Lacey, who decided basically we had a conversation. I said, look, we're going to write this and he went, well, okay, if it's going to come out, let's do it properly so you don't get anything wrong. So meet me in my office in an hour and I'll give you the whole thing. Went down to his office. He was a lawyer, leading lawyer, and, um, you know, gave me all the documents, gave me the, uh, I love this bit, the um, proposed logo of the new club had been drawn literally on a napkin. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we ran that on the front cover, uh, blah, blah, blah. So that was that one. And then a month later, um, Hawthorne and Melbourne had both, their names had come up um, in in a potential merger situation. But then a, a good mate of mine who had zero interest in footy, um, uh, I bumped into him one day in the street and he said, oh, I meant to, I meant to tell you, I think I might have a story for you. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he said, well, I went to this party on the weekend and um, – I ran into uh, the AFL. I'm not going to say this guy's name. People will be able to work it out. But he goes, I ran into the AFL, AFL lawyer. Jeez, he was pissed. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, well, he did have that reputation. I said, oh, yeah, well, what happened there? He said, well, he was telling me about – he said, I, I remember thinking, thinking, well, that, that, this might interest Rowan. He, <laughs> he told me that uh, that we were about to see a merger announced. And I said, oh, yeah. Well, he said, yeah, I think I was – he said uh, – Melbourne and Hawthorne. And, Did you ask uh, if he heard it wrong? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, he tells me they've signed a heads of agreement. And it was like, he said, is that of any interest to you? And I said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I can probably do something with that. Yeah. So um, like the Sunday Age, we you know, obviously only came out one day a week, but um, we did well enough to break both those stories. So, mm. yeah, was a, that was a bit of a buzz. But – I mean, they're, they're massive in the context of footy. They're massive stories and it's harder and harder to get. There aren't that many of those stories. They're harder to get now because clubs have much bigger media departments and they break a lot of their own news on their own media outlets, you know, their own websites and video and stuff. And I find a lot of the stuff that some of these young TV reporter types, hello, Tom Brown, um, get... <laughs> Don't mention really, uh, really excited about is often not a great deal. So therefore, you, you get a story like the two Richmond guys, you know, Perhaps. out on the piss yeah. on the Gold Coast, and and then you know I jump on Twitter and there's Tom tweeting breathlessly about it, and then you are Tom on Twitter. Can well, you make sense of his Twitter? <laughs> well, not this one. When he comes back and he goes, uh, uh, apparently. Um, uh, the fight knocked the kebab, uh, the the kebab was ruined, and Sydney Stack went back and bought a second one. You know, it's like top notch journalism. Uh, the important well, stuff being I reported there. Yeah, quick, more on the kebab update. You know, was it mixed? Yeah, well, did it have tzatziki sauce on it? You know, um, so I can sort of do without that stuff. But you know, yeah. uh, uh, that one of the things that annoys me about 
footy media now is I don't think there's as many people in it who have a genuine passion for and love of the game. I can, you know, like I'm going to Does that make you feel being somebody that's reported for so long and is such a passionate fan of the game? Like we discussed on the Grand Final podcast, you've been in the, like, the last 49 Grand Finals and it pained you to miss this year. Like does it frustrate oh, it, you? It saddens me because, you know, I, I can honestly say, and I know I come across sounding like in my day, but it's true. You know, when I started and for a long time, every single person that was covering football was a massive footy fan who'd grown up going to the footy, loved it. The highlight of the week was being at the game, covering the game. And that's still a highlight for me. But these days, and for a fair while now actually, so many uh, journos that cover the game aren't even interested in, in going and covering a game. It's sort of like they see going to a game and writing a match report or something as this sort of menial Task and that they're not particularly interested in it. And there seems to be a view that because these games are on TV and everyone watches them live, um, they don't then need to read an account of what happened in the game because they've already seen it. Yeah. And I, I have always differed on this because I myself used to, you know, if my team had a good win, I used to love reading a, a well-written match report about how they won that game. And I, I've always taken a lot of pride in writing match reports and, um, right, it, since you were five, hey? Yeah, exactly. But, I, you know, I, I think um, I think that those ones might have been better. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, like you – Not probably, definitely. <laughs> you, you need uh, a, a reasonable knowledge of the game and, and, and what makes teams tick and whatever to be able to write an informed – well, not even a match report, but just an analysis of how the game was won or whatever. I think that's a real skill and to me that's always been – a huge part of my, my, you know, when I judge the quality of football journalists, for me, a huge part is how well they understand the game. I don't think the majority view it like that now. I think the majority view it 80%, 90% based on their ability to break news stories. Now, that's really important. Don't get me wrong. And it's not something that was a huge strength of mine and other people have had a great strength at that and, and good on them. But my point about that is anyone can – it's an art in itself, but you don't need to know much about football to break a, a big news story. Like, for example, that merger story. I, you know, I, I could have been not interested in football. I could have been covering courts or something. Had that person given me that information, I would have had enough sense to realise it was important. I could have written the same story whether or not I knew anything about the game. You know what I mean? So – um, and I think what's happened as a result of that, geez, I'm a long-winded explanation <laughs> here, but I think – It's good though. I think what's happened is that the journos, those that didn't play AFL footy, have been consigned more and more to that news-chasing role and the former players who get into the media, of whom there are a lot more – they are the analysts and the people that tell you about the game. Do you think that's a good thing, having the former players as the analysts? Because they're not trained, I guess. I don't. I mean, no, sorry. It can be a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing having that rigid a definition. And from a selfish point of view, it costs people like me because it means that, say, and look, I've done TV. I did Optus Vision before Fox Footy was ever around, you know, but – these days, someone like Fox Footy would look at me and go, well, 
if you're a non-player, you've got to be a newsbreaker. Well, he's not a newsbreaker. He's more a commentator analyst. So they would be worried that the people watching at home would look at someone like me giving my two bobs worth on a game and go, well, you haven't played at the highest level. What do you know? I think that's a very outdated view. I think the, pub- I think the public... They're going for good commentators. I feel like a lot of people have been a bit disappointed in the commentators, a lot of them being former players, you know, don't want to name names. But, yeah. like, you, you know what it's like, and I agree. It's really disappointing that the industry, they can't just look at the quality of the work. They look at how many games of AFL football, and just because you've played the game at the highest level doesn't make you automatically qualified to comment on the game and stuff. Because, well, it doesn't mean you yeah. understand it that exactly. well. Exactly. It doesn't I, mean you're a good speaker either. It just means you can follow X's and O's. Like, Well, there's, there's two important parts. You have to be able to articulate your knowledge and not all of them do that well and you have to have the knowledge and believe it or not you know I, some of the greatest players in the history of the game that well here's an example i'm pretty sure he won't hear it gary ablett senior you worked with him didn't you yeah. well i did yeah in a very short but i mean he's the best footballer i've ever seen but he's if you said to him how are you such a great player he wouldn't have he wouldn't be able to tell you. And his knowledge of the game was terrible. You know, one of the one of my favourite Gary Ablett stories was concerns the first time. So I was his ghost and he came in to write his first column and he had this paranoia about talking about himself or talking about Geelong or talking about any of his teammates. And in the end, after about half an hour of donuts, you know, I said, well, Gary, we've got to write about something. What <laughs> You guys played Brisbane up at the Gabba at the weekend and Brisbane had just moved to the Gabba. I said, tell us a bit about that, you know, about what, what the new look Gabba's like. And he said, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, the facility's good and uh, plenty of room there in, in the dressing rooms and the warm-up area is good and all that stuff. And I said, okay, and we talked a bit about that. And I said, well, what about Brisbane or a young emerging side, you know, what did you make of them? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, He said, uh, oh, that, who's that little – you know, rugged guy. I said, oh, Chris Scott? I said, yeah, yeah, he's not bad, he's not bad. And they've got uh, uh, that young guy, Lepich. Uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. Uh, and I said, uh, I'll throw a few names at him. I said, well, what about um, Nathan Chapman, who was – he was one of the high draft picks the year before. And he goes, nah, gee, sorry, mate. No, that – no, who's that? That name doesn't ring a bell at all. And I said, well, actually, Gary, you played the entire four quarters on Nathan <laughs> Chapman and kicked ten goals on him. And you've been on a lot of money as well to go down and do that, Ablett. Yeah. yeah. The, the other, my other favourite Gazza story is uh, Victoria played a state game over in Adelaide in 87 and um, uh, Gary Lyon was in his second season and um, they're doing lane work. So there's a line of players at each end drilling the ball at each other and uh, everyone's going, you know, hey, um, hook, hook, yeah, Robbie, Robbie, Robbie. And uh, Gaz is about to lead for the ball and he's looked at the guy coming at him with the ball and he said, who's this guy? And it was Gary Lyon. So he's you know, state footballer. He didn't yeah. know who he was. You know? Yeah, I just want to take it back uh, a few more years. And I'm curious because uh, I know you started at Sun News Pictorial, I think, when you were just yep. 17. Just what, What's now the Herald Sun? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, di- uh, just straight out of your HSC, VCA now um, – which is like me uh, in a couple of months, and you're going into this environment of this footy journalism office space. Is it like uh, walking into a footy club that's super competitive or is everyone kind of level playing field? Well, what happens is I, I wasn't immediately on sport, so 
Uh, long story. So the um, the company was called the Herald and Weekly Times, and you had in the one office you had the Sun, what's now the Herald Sun, and the Herald, which was an evening newspaper in Melbourne. And my father worked for the Herald, so there, there was this rule: you couldn't be on the same paper as a sibling or a family member or whatever. So they put me on the Sun, which was fine because the Sun was the footy paper, you know. I made it known straight away that's what I wanted to do. But one of the things with a cadetship is you're supposed to get a broad range of experiences. So the first year, uh, I was actually taken on not as a cadet but as what they called a copy boy. And a copy boy, this is real like Jimmy Olsen stuff, you know. So um, copy, which is the stories that people write, used to be wrapped out on the old typewriter or the – what they call VDTs, video display terminals, they just started to come in. But people still use typewriters and they'd do it on these little bits Old of school, copy like paper it. and then they'd write one sheet, rip it off, put it there and they'd like, boy! <laughs> and the copy boy's job was to collate the bits of copy paper and take it to the sub-editor's desk. To start? Um, and, yeah, but, uh, I mean, that was... That was great. That was yeah. involved with the production process. It's been you, so exciting. For but you guy. also had to pick up Terry Vine's dry cleaning, <laughs> go and put a bet on at the TAB for Jack Elliott, <laughs> go and get um, Pat Bowring's ham and salad sandwiches from over the road. So it was a bit of menial stuff too. But they let you they let you do things as well and you worked in different areas. So one of the areas I worked in as a copy boy was – what they called Editorial 2, which was um, the back building of the old office, which is, do you know where um, the press club is, the restaurant on the yep. corner, Flinders Street and Exhibition Street? Well, that was the Herald Weekly Times. Um, the back building there housed a whole lot of publications like uh, Home Beautiful, TV Week, the Weekly Times, uh, a magazine called, I think, Prime or Prime Time for pensioners. Sporting Globe and Sunday Press, which was this is before the Sunday Age or Sunday Herald Sun. Scotty Palmer, who's sort of a sports journalistic legend, he was sports editor of a Sunday Press, and um, I made it known, you know, how keen I was to write footy and stuff. So Scotty would throw me stories, and you got given plenty of opportunities, and that was great. It's all you can ask for. Yeah, and then you do a year as a copy boy or girl, and then you get a cadetship. When you do a cadetship, the idea is you get a taste of everything. So you do some general news reporting, you do courts, you do police rounds, you do politics, um, uh, the union round, you know, or they trades hall, you know. I don't know if they'd ever have that now. Um, and sport on the sun, there was a spot for a cadet in sport. Um, but I, I sort of kept banging the drum so hard that – Finally, when I got into sport, the the and and funnily enough, there w- there was a bit of a staff shortage on sport at that stage. So I went in at the end of '84 into sport to do ostensibly district cricket and VFA football, right? Which is like what VFL would be now, the VFA, correct. the second tier. Yeah, correct. Um, but right from the start, um, because they didn't have enough people, I was also covering VFL games, AFL games, Shield cricket. I did some international cricket. 
Uh, and one of the great thrills, I got to ghost Lou Richards, who was like, an absolute legend. Well, Lou, you know, it, it's hard to convey to people of your age how big Lou Richards was. Bigger than Eddie Maguire. Far bigger than Eddie Maguire. Like Lou, and and Lou would do these dares. You know, he'd say, "Yeah, if Collingwood beats Geelong, I'll." Row, oh, if Geelong beats Collingwood, he did this, I will row across the Barwon River in a bathtub. <laughs> so Geelong beat Collingwood and on the Tuesday morning 10,000 people turned out <laughs> to watch Lou get in a bathtub and row across the Barwon River with Billy Goggin, the Geelong coach, <laughs> acting as cock. <laughs> he did things like he cut Ted Witten's front lawn with nail clippers <laughs> There was one that's on YouTube, actually, in Carlton. He went out to Ligon Street and had to eat a huge bowl of pasta after Carlton beat Collingwood, <laughs> and the Carlton players turned up and they tipped it all over him. And these dares, you know, it, it was sort of like the lifeblood of Melbourne. Lou was such a big figure. Sounds like such a character. Like, oh. and, I, and I got to – I was – by this stage I was 20 and I got to go out and all the stories with him, help him write his stuff. Um, Lou, funnily enough, my dad, um, back in the 50s, dad had been a chief uh, or sort of deputy sports editor of The Sun and um, dad sort of invented Lou's kiss of death column. So Lou uh, had a soft spot for my dad, so he treated me really well. And he always go, ah, you're only a kid, you know, major what you are, kid, you know. <laughs> and... But he was always so generous about introducing it. I'll never forget the day, for example, you know, we went out to Footscray and we were doing an interview with some Footscray player and Ted Whitten was there. Ted used to just stroll around the club like he owned the joint. Didn't work there or anything. Ted worked for Adidas, but he just – so we're walking along the corridor and Ted Whitten comes the other way, you know, so it's classic. Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Ted comes the other way and, Ah, well, you fucking little prick. <laughs> ah, Ted, you old bastard, you know. You, uh, uh, he's a kid. Mate, suck it out of young Ron. And Ted Whitten had this famous handshake where he would grab your hand and literally sort of pull you off your feet. It was sort of like a show of power. You know, I didn't see it coming, you know, so I put my hand out Ted's grabbed my hand and I've staggered, you know, staggered towards him and Lou's pissed himself, you know. But I remember standing there thinking, I'm standing here between Lou Richards and Ted Whitten. You picked yourself. I missed, and I did. And it was, you know, experiences like that, I will always treasure things like that. Yeah, like when you're a six-year-old kid or whatever on the terraces of Windy Hill, uh, just watching watching the games as just a spectator, an aspiring journalist maybe in the future, and then like just a bit more than 10 years later, going into that scenario is just would have been the dream, mate. And and you know what? Not, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of over-romanticise it, but... One of the things that I love the fact that every grand final I'm ever at, so I didn't go this year, I couldn't, but like 2019, same feeling. It's a massive day, no matter who's playing. I get nervous and I sit there in in a good spot, you know, and I recognise how privileged I am to be able to not only be there but to give people my version of what happened. It's never lost on me. And I'm I'm incredibly grateful for it, and I've worked hard for it. But you've got to have a bit of luck as well. And um, I, I'm just so grateful for 
those experiences I've had along the way. Oh, mate, that just sounds, yeah, sounds amazing. I think anybody that's been to a grand final, they, it, you're so lucky. Whether it's your team playing or not, it is just one of the most special days on the calendar. And, you know, I, I did just yesterday, I did a, um, a spot. There's a, <laughs> there's a show called The Party Show on Triple R that a guy called Heavily Gritter hosts. It's sort of like a cult thing. And Heavily rang me to get my take on sport for the year and, and then he asked me, said, oh, we didn't have enough sport this year, so can I have your top five moments in sport for the decade oh. from 2011 to 20? It's tough. Well, I, I thought about it. I thought, oh, people, sh- you should have this and you should have this. And in the end I said, no, I'm going to have what were my top five moments. And what were they? Well, I had three of them were footy. Um, I had... Uh, I'm trying to remember the order. I had, as uh, I thought, it was fairly magnanimous of me. One of them was Ben Stokes taking England to victory oh. at Headingley last year. You know, which is as close as I've come to crying at a sporting event for a long or about a sporting event. That for hurt a long it. Time. That hurt. Uh, my number one event, still the most incredible thing I've seen in, I've witnessed in sport live was um, Sergio Aguero winning oh, the title from Manchester City. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Um, and the other three were footy moments. They were 2018 grand final, which was absolutely epic. 2016. Um, that was a great incredible game. I was there. Story. And what I consider, and, you know, I've seen my team win four grand finals, but I, I, the best grand final I've, I think I've seen in terms of the spectacle and the drama and everything was 2012 when um, Sydney beat Hawthorne by 10 points, goal by Nick Malczewski in the last 40 seconds. You know, that game, only grand final with three comebacks, not just one comeback, mm. there were three. Incredible individual feats, um, courage, you know, goods playing on Oh, one you'll leg. never forget that Nick Malczewski goal to yeah. seal it. It, <sighs> it felt like it hung in the air for about 30 seconds yeah. and I was in the – I was in the press. I was in the press box. I was sitting next to Martin Blake, really good friend of mine, who was leaving the age. That his last assignment for the age was covering that grand final. Martin's nephew is Jude Bolton, who oh. was playing for Sydney, and he's pretty understated gazelle. His nickname is. He's pretty understated gazelle, and he was trying to keep it together. But I could see he's really panicking. And Malczewski's snap goes up and up and I'm sitting next to him and I'm just – I'm punching him on the arm and then harder and harder and harder. And in the end, I just went, yes! Was that usual in the press box or did you have to I've sort of keep it together? I've been told off a number of times <laughs> over the years. For, I've had I've had, some, I've had Enjoy some it. shockers. I was going to ask like, – I've, I've, I've always been curious about what goes on in the press box because – It's pretty a, sedate now. Yeah, <laughs> but – is is there a particular moment uh, watching footy? Is that the moment that sticks out to you in the press box, watching that Malczewski goal fly in around his body, or is there another moment from any other decade? That oh, yeah, an Essendon moment would be Oh, up there. well, that one, yeah, a couple. Um, there's another funny one, um, the 93 preliminary final. So Adelaide's oh, seven goals up on Essendon at half time. Essendon comes back. Um, so I'm on the Sunday age. Lee Matthews. Um, was writing a column for the Sunday Age. He's sitting next to me in the in the press box. Heston's coming back, getting closer and closer, and there's this passage of play which produced the single loudest roar I've ever heard at the MCG, and it 
starts in the back pocket with Dustin Fletcher and the ball comes out to Ricky Ollerenshaw in the middle. He runs through the middle of the ground, spears this pass to David Calthorpe, who marks it, handballs to Mark McCurry. McCurry runs in, nails the goal. If you watch that on YouTube, anyone, the speakers just rattle. But on there on the day, it's the loudest roar I've ever heard at Grant. Anyway, at that moment, I've leapt up out of my seat <laughs> like with my arms like this, outstretched, and Lee had just got himself a cup of coffee Oh, and unfortunately, no. my right elbow knocked his. Oh coffee. no! A scalding hot coffee oh. is gone, and he was in a suit and a white shirt because he had to fly up to Brisbane. Funnily enough, even though he was still coaching Collingwood, um, it's gone all over. It would have it would have killed. It was bloody hot, but he was Lee Matthews, so he couldn't. You know, he he barely flinched. He just sort of went like that, and then <laughs> I thought I'm dead. And kill me. <laughs> he turns around him and he goes, I can't do the voice properly, but he's got, a, you know, he's got a funny sort of high pitched voice. He goes, Geez, Rowan, I knew you barrack for Essendon, but I didn't know you were that passionate about it. Um, so every time I see him, we have a good laugh about that. And there's stuff like that. 99, the preliminary final, you know, the Essendon disaster. Um, <laughs> I, I was writing my story after the game. Devastated, and then my bloody laptop computer packed up. Oh no! They were pretty early, rudimentary laptops, and um, I just picked it up and just—it was a little thing. It was NEC they were made by, and I've picked it up in one hand and just gone, you know, thrown it <sighs> across the press box, hit the side wall, and just shattered. And I just picked up the phone. Fortunately, we still had the uh, copy takers at the time. So yeah. there were like typists who you could dictate your story to and I just did it off the top of my head. Um, was so it that tough was, the other one I'm I'm told the I'm told that I also disgraced myself in two thousand and one, the famous Essendon comeback against North Melbourne. Um, so Essendon came back from sixty nine points down ten minutes into the second quarter. Uh, incredible game. Um, finally sealed the win. I think it was Blake Carousella ran into an open goal, put him two goals up, Siren's about to go. I've apparently, don't remember it, but I apparently leapt out of my chair and started doing this hula dance. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was one of the great days of my life because that was incredible. And then I wrote uh, the match report or whatever I was writing that day and I went straight from there to the corner hotel where I saw my favourite Australian band play one of the best gigs of all time. Who was that? Uh, the Mark of Cain, oh. who are uh, a bit of a cult band from Adelaide uh, that I've always loved. So Yeah, I, I haven't been around for any of those moments you mentioned, but I'm sure Tech Man Tony out in the sound shack back there, he's going through a roller coaster of emotion. Producer Tony. <laughs> <laughs> he's pumping his fist out yeah, there. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty Essendon-centric. But look, yeah. you know, I, I am a bit a, outnumbered. <laughs> I, I am a, a, I'm genuinely a lover of footy and I, I can get as excited – one of the good things about doing it professionally is you can get caught up in other teams. And, you know, I've I've said for long, you know, there's been long periods of my career where I've had better, probably particularly now to be honest, <laughs> much better relationships with people at other clubs than the club I follow. Um, and, you know, you feel really happy for their victories and, you know, you feel sorry for their failures and, and stuff. But, um, you yeah, know, that's been another great thing about it, the amount of 
ordinary people I've met in footy, hardly any, you know, like people, most people in clubs I've dealt with have been great and, um, you know, I felt like there was decent mutual respect there. They respected, they could see that I was a fair income footy head and, and that I genuinely loved the game and also I'd hope they could see that I wasn't out to beat up a, a story that I had a genuine interest in writing about the game, you know. Um, so I've sort of, I've prided myself a bit on my relationships with coaches and people like that. You Did know? you ever find it hard to report on your own team, particularly like in the big finals, like prelim finals and grand finals and they lost? Like that must have been so tough because you're going through a wave of emotions. Yeah. But then you're just expected to, like you said, like you have such a passion for putting these match reports together, but it's pretty tough when your own team's just lost not to have a pessimistic outlook. It takes such a professional approach from your, I guess, your respect. Quite honestly, no. And, you know, I, and I know, you look, people always think, oh, yeah, he's biased and whatever. They're always going to say that. But, but it doesn't come out that way. Well, I've never, I've honestly never found it a problem because I've always been so caught up in wanting to write the best thing I could that um, you, you've just got to park any disappointment and, and be professional. And it's just, I've, and, and also, that if your team loses, they deserve to lose. You know, I'm, I've never been a person that's gone on about, oh, the umpire oh. lost us. I really haven't. I honestly haven't. Yeah, you don't look like a Collingwood supporter. So, you know, I mentioned the 99 preliminary final. The other one that sticks in my head for that is the 96 preliminary final against Sydney where Tony Lockett kicked the, the point. Yeah. Well, I was there for the game and – um uh, so what happened that night? It was right on deadline because it was a night game. I had the whole match report virtually written and just with room for a top. And, you know, with uh, how many minutes? Four minutes left to play. Essendon was two goals up. Looked like they were going to win. I can hear Tony sobbing from out here. I was, it was, <laughs> oh, it was hard to cop. And, Keep it and quiet out back, Tony. I, I can tell you how that unfolded. So I wrote the whole thing and filed it just left room to dictate literally one paragraph. And I had the sports the sports editor said, you know, as soon as the siren goes, ring me, I'll take it down, just dictate it to me. So plug and marks, the siren goes, we're waiting for him to take the kick. I was looking at it from where the press box was behind the goals. I was convinced he was going to kick it or at least make the distance, which is all he had to do. Um and so I've got the phone up. I've rung through to the sports editor and I said, he's going, what's happening? What's happening? You know, and I said, he's, well, he had the TV, but there was a little bit delayed. He said, he's about to kick. Hang on, hang on. Put my hand over the phone. He kicks the point. Place goes mad. I go, all right, hang on. Just hang on two secs. Put my hand over the phone and I just went, fuck. Sydney last night moved into the 1996 <laughs> I, you know, that was the one moment of angst I allowed myself and then I dictated a story. So, um, yeah, it, it, honestly, uh, I, I, I've, I've reported on uh, three losing Essendon grand finals. You know, you, you have to do it. Speaking of grand finals, what about that honour of being able to vote on Norm Smith medals? Like, that's pretty huge yeah, to be buzz. allowed that. Like, that is a buzz. Um, well, I've done that. I've done that twice. Um, so I did 1995 when Greg Williams won it. And I found that one pretty easy, actually. They, I mean, Carlton smashed along and Diesel had 
31 disposals and kicked five goals from a half-forward flank. Uh, he was just outstanding. So gave him the three. I think I might have given Peter Dean the two and Anthony Kudafidis the one. But everyone voted for Diesel, so it was pretty clear cut. What was interesting is the second time I did it, 2006. Um, so when I did it in 95, I didn't have to sign anything. Um, I don't think anyone published the individual sets of votes. No one knew who the judges were, you know. It was just an honour, but it wasn't like publicly advertised. By the time I did it in 06, there was a big announcement during the week. You know, even all Smith judges will be... I had to sign a agreement saying I won't bet on the Norm Smith. I won't tell anyone my votes. I'll hand them straight over. Da 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 da. Um, and uh, geez, it was tough in '06 because it was a West Coast Sydney point the difference, and there were a whole heap of good players. And um, uh, and in the end, I, I went for I gave three to Andrew Embley who won it, and I think. All the others went three for him as well. Um, but that was a lot tougher. But, um, yeah, that, 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 I must admit I got a real buzz out of voting on the Smith medal. So you've covered a lot of games. I'd love to know. So who are your favourite players that you've watched? It can be from any team. It can be any number. Who are the, You've covered footy for so long. You must have some favourite players to watch and ones that you just really enjoyed. Three come immediately to mind. Um, Gary Ablett, Sonia. Why I reckon he's the greatest player of all time, it, in ter- it's, it depends how you frame it. In terms of consistency, no. I'd have Kerry ahead of him. I'd have Lee Matthews probably ahead of him. Um, but Gary Ablett Sr. did things that no other player I've ever seen has physically been able to do. And by that I mean um, combination of strength and brilliance. So... Yeah, hard it is to snap a goal over your shoulder and get any distance on it, you know. Um, He could snap over his shoulder from outside 50 metres and comfortably make the distance. The leap he had, you know, he could, without much of a a jump, he could just catapult himself into the air. We've all seen a million examples of that. He had a brute strength, quite a deceptively strong body. You know, he, he didn't... He didn't have muscles protruding everywhere, but he had a really very strong below the hips. You look at the 89 grand final, ask Dipper. You know, he just made an absolute mess of Dipper, you know, who, who his lung collapsed so badly he nearly died, you know. Um, but that 14 combat- 7 in a losing team as well against Essendon, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Uh, that's I covered that game too. Well, Paul Salmon. Kicked 10 in that game and no one even talks about yeah. it. Um, that was an incredible game. He kicked 14 – he kicked three bags of 14 goals. He kicked two two 14s against Richmond and one against Essendon in a losing side. I can't even get 14 kicks on a Saturday and he can get 14 goals. <laughs> I don't think I had 14 touches my three seasons playing, honestly. <laughs> well, that um, – you know, funnily enough, that 14, I mentioned that column I wrote with him um, in 93 – that column was written on the Friday and the Saturday was that Geelong Essendon game. So it was he so the Sunday age was going huge on the fact that it was his first column. So he's kicked fourteen. I knew it was coming. Straight away I get a call from the office. We've got to get something from Ablett on the fourteen goals. And yeah, fair enough. So um, <laughs> yeah, I knew it was gonna be hard work. So go to the rooms, go to the Geelong rooms, Malcolm Blight calls it 
the most amazing individual performance he's ever seen, you know, good quote. Um, so the office rings me. Oh, hang on, did I have a – I think I just got a mobile actually and the office rings me. Um, have you got him yet? Have you got him? No, no, he's still in the room. He's still in the showers. You know, he was famously slow to get changed and stuff. So I'm standing around there for like 45 minutes waiting for him to get out of the freaking showers and I've got all this stuff I've got to write. You know, I'm starting to panic. And finally comes out. There's hardly anyone left. He drags himself out of the showers. Oh, good day, Ron. What are you doing here? And I said, well, they want me to talk to you, Gary. Oh, why? And I said, Mate, you just kick 14 goals. <laughs> I said, your coach has just called it the greatest individual performance he's ever seen. He goes, oh, gee, that's nice of him, wasn't it? <laughs> and I go, so what do you reckon, Gary? How do you feel about it? And he goes, oh, look, mate, just say I'm disappointed we lost the game. See ya. And just walks away. <laughs> Somehow I had to turn that into a story. Um, yeah, so look, he, he was just a freak. Who are your other ones? Um, one is Tim Watson. He, you know, like I grew up with those baby bombers, um, and Tim was one of them, along with Merv Neagle and Nobby Clark and um, Glenn Hawker, Paul Vanderhaar. Um, and I was around their age, you know, I was a couple of years younger. But they're all teenagers, you know, and I was sort of, you know, and, and it, it was a long time coming, you know. They came together as a group in about 77, lost a succession of elimination finals, which I suffered, um, you know, got smashed in a grand final in 83 and then finally won in 84 in the most incredible circumstances, you know, kicked five goals to three-quarter time and then 9-6 in the last quarter. Um, and Tim... Yeah, Tim was a wonderful player. I, I, must, I must admit, if you hear this, Job, I'm sorry, but I've said this to you before. He'll be listening for sure. <laughs> well, well, people have that, you know, for a long time there was that, you know, is Joe better than Tim? You know, who's the best Watson? And people would start to mount an argument saying, well, Job's now one, you know, four or three best and fairest. Blah, blah, blah. And I would just sit back and go, look, I love Job. Trust me, Tim, I think Tim is one of the most underrated champions the game has seen. He he had explosive pace. He had incredible power, um, Could was really good overhead. Anytime he went forward, he could kick goals. Ball magnet, always won a swag of possessions. Um, smart, beautiful user of the footy. He just had it all, you know, and, and I loved watching him. I saw his first game. Uh, sorry, all this stuff comes back to me when I start <laughs> reminiscing. So Tim played his first game at 15 and 10 months. I was there. I was a 12-year-old. It was 1977. They played Richmond out at Waverley. And he looked like an 18-year-old, you know, like he, he, he was strong. You know, he's 15. Um, and the game is a draw too, funnily enough. But, uh, you know, I, he, I was always a big fan. I ended up getting a duffel coat with Tim 32 Watson on it. And then I got to know him, you know, from the time I, I was 20, um, I was dealing with him and, and found him always really nice. Yeah, I love him on SEN. Yeah, yeah. No, he's good value, Tim. He's got a really good dry sense of humour. Mm. His politics are pretty dodgy, but <laughs> we won't go there. Um, but, um, yeah, so always loved him as a player. The other one... It's just such a great story, but I loved watching him. Uh, not a player that people will immediately guess, but uh, Leon Baker, who oh. only played, uh, I think, 80-odd games for Essendon, 88 games over 
five seasons. Didn't come to Western until 28, um, but he was a football nomad. He, he was actually a Victorian who had played football in Queensland, in country WA, went from country WA, uh, Bunbury, to play with Swan Districts, played in the 82-83 premierships with Swan Districts. Essendon got him across and he played in two. He played in four straight premierships. But it's a great story. One of the great, not tragedies, I always believe strongly Leon Baker should have won the 84 Norm Smith medal. He kicked four goals. He kicked two. He kicked one of the, one of the most famous moments of grand final history, the blind turn around David O'Halloran and the goal to put Essendon in front. He was – who was he like? Um, he was just an incredibly neat, efficient user of the footy, always won plenty of the ball but never, ever, ever wasted a possession. Incredibly smart, beautiful kick, either foot. And again, like Tim, could go forward and do heaps of damage. So he kicked four goals in the 84 grand final. Um, the week before against Collingwood, and they smashed Collingwood, admittedly, but he kicked six goals playing out of the middle and half forward. Um, unfortunately, because he didn't come to Victoria till he was 28, you know, he was starting to struggle with stress fractures and things by the time he was 30. 32. So he only played, yeah, 80-odd games. But um, Tim Watson, funnily enough, will tell you, people say, who's the best player you play with at Essendon? And he will say, Leon Baker. Just a brilliant footballer. And look, there's been a whole lot of others who have been spectacular, you know. Um, I've loved watching Buddy Franklin, you know, of the newer breed. I've, I've loved watching Dusty Martin, you know, Dusty. I love watching Dusty, you know, because, again, it's that – he has some ablet-like qualities, the combination of strength with brilliance, you know. Also off-field as well, he's a bit more quiet like Ablett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and same with Buddy too, you mm. know. Yeah. I mean, Buddy's had a couple of things, but they're both <laughs> – both Buddy and Dusty are, you know, they're, they're – yeah, they're, they're not wild or anything, yeah. you know. Like, and, I mean, Buddy's just been amazing, hasn't he? Um, but then, you know, who earlier than that, um, you know, as a kid – People like Kevin Bartlett, Royce Hart, uh, Malcolm Blight, um, the guys that have kicked 100 goals. You know, like what an amazing – I think probably my favourite era of football was the early 90s where the game had become professional and we had the AFL banner, but it was still – you know, those def- that defensiveness hadn't crept into the game so much that – Sides are incapable of scoring. And when you wonder about that, you know, you look back on the records. You know, 1983, you had three guys kick 100 goals. You know, you had uh, Dunstall, Ablett and Modra all kicked over 100. 1992, I think Dunstall kicked 145. He got pretty close to Bob Pratt and Peter Hudson's 150 record. Um, you know, big score, and it's not just about big scores either. It's about how quickly the ball moved. Mate, what does a common medalist get now? What did Tom Hawkins kick for the year? Just over forty goals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> short and seven bit, yeah. but I think they kicked oh, sixty ish. The, the, the average, yeah. the yeah. average for the last ten years has been sixty odd. You know, yeah. Buddy, Buddy kicked one hundred and two thousand eight. Last ever ninety nine. Yeah, he's the he's the only player who, who was the last one to kick a hundred before Fraser him. Garrick. Uh, Did Lloyd kick a hundred? 
Lloyd, did, Lloyd he yeah. did, but Gary did too in 04. yeah. So that's right. So in the last 16, 17 seasons, only one guy's topped 100. Yeah. And it'll never happen again unless we make incredibly radical changes. Well, I love yeah. this transition. I was about to ask you about that. What, what do you think of the current game and the current state in particular? The AFL seems to change the rules every season. There's always seems to be a chorus of people saying that the game, it's too slow and the rolling mall and all that. And it's interesting from my perspective, as this is pretty much the only game that I've known for the last like 10 or so years, which is really when I've sort of developed into my football watching mind. I'd love to know what your thoughts on the current state of the game are and also the recent rule changes that the AFL has brought in. Yeah, no, it's a bit of territory to cover there. I wonder if I can do it in less than half an hour. Um, Well, one thing, funnily enough, one thing I I discovered this year and I – you sort of have this assumption that people – like what you like about the game and people in my age bracket do. That's pretty universal. Such a generational thing. But um, a guy – so I I write a weekly column for ESPN and the um, guys in charge of the footy coverage there, a guy called Neil Seawang, posed this to me as a column idea and I wrote about it and it sort of made more sense, which was he said – why do we assume that everyone's on the same page with those? Maybe kids today think the game's fine the way it is because that's what they're used to. And I sort of thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, but what about we don't get enough of this and we don't get enough of this? And then I started thinking, well, yeah, but when I was a kid, the things that had been phased out of footy were the drop kick and the stab pass. And old-timers would say, well, we don't see them anymore. And I'd think, well, so what? I don't care, you know, like so. And I started, I just started seeing it more from a uh, the perspective of, you know, okay, first thing, if we are – we have to be 100% sure that we're – as many people as possible aren't happy with how the game looks. And perhaps that's – perhaps the AFL – the AFL seems to have made that assumption as well, but maybe – to what extent is that actually right? You know, maybe you guys are happy with the game as it is, and I sort of get that now. I've thought about. I still enjoy footy. I still love watching. I try still Same try and watch yeah. as many games as I can. The test, though, and it's I'm going to ask you guys this as I'm interested in the response. If you took the best game from the last couple of years, right, and put it up against. Have you watched much footy from the early nineties? Yeah, uh, yeah, I've well, I've watched the um, ninety three Grand Final, ninety three Prelim. Uh, I've probably watched other games, can't remember specific ones, yeah. but I think. Uh, but the big, question was going to be: if you had to make a choice, which game is more attractive to you? So I think one of the key differences is the free flowing, uh, like free scoring nature of footy in those days, which is probably one of the things that. Uh, people uh, like you yearn for. Uh, but for me, uh, I don't know if people might share this view, but when it's non-stop scoring, like that North Melbourne Essendon game in 01, was it? Yep. Yep. Uh, it's a bit basketball-y, just like non-stop action, action. You just need a bit of like uh, kind of – need to slow down, I guess, yep. to put it simply. Um, and there's I, not much, much like, defence happening. Yeah, that's just what I'm used to because um, – 
and it is entertaining every now and then when you get uh, a free scoring game, but that rarely happens. And I do prefer a consistently kind of not ultra defensive, but maybe like a 90, 90 game uh, as opposed to a 150, 150 game. It is, yeah. it is funny though that you mentioned basketball because I think one of my grubs with American sport, American football, basketball, you have the timeout, it's all at stop start. So I do get the aspect and the fact that a lot of stoppages, like it is annoying, like the game stops. And I know one of the things that I find the most annoying, and it's only small, but it's like when you get a free kick or something and the player just doesn't give the ball back, it wastes eight to 10 seconds. I find that so frustrating. So I definitely get from that respect of like, yeah, there is a few more stoppages, but then I also like what you're saying, Harper, and the fact that how much more sophisticated the defensive systems are at the at the moment and, yet, and yes it's hard to score and yes we had some horrible footy this year but then how much does that actually have to do with the fact that there were shorter quarters and like also, this was, and that they're not training like how are you meant to improve your skills and get that match practice if you can't come within 1.5 meters and how much does that have to do with uh the media pushing this narrative of the game's crap onto people uh like rightly or wrongly pushing the narrative of we've got to fix up this game onto uh, younger people or any people really and then just everyone thinking it's crap. Well, yeah, there's well, definitely- I, I think one of the – for me, one of, one of the problems with this is when we're not necessarily asking the right questions, right? So you mentioned the scoring. And so often it people say, yeah, we need more scoring. It's not – and I don't think they actually mean that. It's yeah. not the scoring. It's the ball movement. Yeah. yeah. And here's a good example, right? The greatest game of footy I've ever watched is the 94 preliminary final between Geelong and North Melbourne. And that's a game in which Gary Ablett takes a one-handed mark in the goal square just as the siren goes, kicks a goal, Geelong win after the siren. That was a game in which Geelong got out to a five-goal lead early, North reeled that in and then themselves led by nearly five goals. Geelong came back and got in front. North came back and got in front. So, but it wasn't that high, for the time, it wasn't that high scoring. In the last quarter, in fact, there are only three goals kicked, two by North. The one goal kicked by Geelong is that Ablett goal after the siren to win it. But it is the most thrillingly fast end-to-end footy you've ever seen. In the last minute, if someone's listening to this and you you don't know the game I'm talking about, it's on YouTube. I know there is a clip of just like the last two minutes. Just watch that clip and you'll see what I mean. It goes up and back, up and back, I think at least four, if not five times, literally in the last minute of play. John Barnes takes a saving mark for Geelong in the defensive goal square, drops a sitter of a mark in his attacking goal square. Um, you know, it, it's both sides have chances to score. So it doesn't have to be tied up with scoring. It's just about being able to move the ball, guys to be able to run and carry the footy. Yeah. A bit of space inside the forward lines when the ball's delivered in there. And the figures, um, the stats show that the amount of goals coming out of a defensive 50 has, has plummeted. You know, it's – and I wish I could recall the numbers off the top of my head now. I can't, but I've seen them. It is incredible drop in the percentage of goals scored out of the defensive 50. All the goals now, or, you know, a vast percentage of goals now by the better teams are kicked as a result of – 
turnovers forced in the forward 50, not coming out mm. of the defensive 50. Richmond model kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that can be quite attractive too, I think, in a, a different sort of way. But I'd still say not as attractive as watching the footy sweep from one end of the ground. I'd even say another. Richmond, it's more slingshot footy now. They seem to just, they get all the numbers up and then they just sort of slingshot it out the back and that sort of thing. They do that a That's bit as well. That's how they're starting to yeah. score. They do that a bit as well. But I couldn't agree more. I think one of the best games that I've seen, especially for a home and away, was the tw- uh, 2009 St Kilda Geelong game, Great round game. 14. Great. I think the scores there were like 68, 64, you know, the Michael Gardner mark. That wasn't a high scoring game, but it just, it's the intensity. It's the fact that it was free flowing and it's just, there's just so many more aspects. But I feel like the AFL is just worried about the scoring. I feel like they're focusing a little bit too much on, you know, the big bash, how that was a rating success for a couple of years there. It's not doing as well as what it was. And they're just, yeah, they're worried too much about what teams are scoring. And particularly one of the new rules, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on like the lowering of the interchange um, cap rotation like just on that St Kilda Geelong game I agree entirely it was an incredible game and that was a great season of footy mm. I would argue however that the standard has dropped significantly even in the 11 years since do you think 18 teams has had anything to do with that or um, yeah potentially it's hard to quantify yeah um, okay so so I, I've then made my position clear what do we do about it I'm now convinced that what we are seeing now isn't going to change substantially unless there is quite radical change. 16 players? Well, yes. I, I, I had – look, there are three – I did write about this again. I feel like I wrote This is pretty – because you're a traditionalist as well, so this is a pretty – It's a, Yeah, it is a big – but see here, I'm glad you said that because the fundamental – you know, I said before, we took, we, we're not asking the right questions. Yeah. One of the biggest problems with this – it is. It is pro- probably the biggest problem is that the people who are most vocal about not liking the look of the game are also the people who are the most vocal about not wanting to change the rules. Yeah. The problem is that unless we change the rules, we are stuck with this. We've gone too far in. Well, people used to talk about the natural evolution of the game. This is what where, where the changes come from 09, right? So 09, we had St Kilda doing the forward press. Before that, we had Clarko's cluster. Um, you know, uh, what else do we have? Collingwood had a version of the forward press. Then we had Hawthorne's. Pagan's paddock. And- uh, before that. <laughs> yeah. But after 09, we had Hawthorne controlling the football. West Coast web. Uh, yeah, we- that sort of stuff. Web, yeah. The whole game, though, now has become so congested and defensive mechanisms so good, you can't. you can only break them down to an extent. So... Little tweaks aren't going to do the trick. We need to create more space. What's the most obvious way of doing that? Removing two players. Now, I I don't think that's going to happen, likely to happen very soon, though, because, uh, well, like, I I agree. Like, I would be all for reducing uh, the number of players on the field to six. Or extending the field, that's the other option. (laughs) Yeah. um, But I, I just don't think that would happen because if they. If that happens in the junior leagues and stuff as well, the AFL won't want that have to happen because that's going to lower participation and lower the money. So, yeah, but again, uh, yeah, no, I understand that. And I, I think oh, I do want it to happen. Though. Then I the think, argument for that is that better product that you'll get more people yeah, watching. And you'll I, I just more don't think it that will way. I so want if you take away two players, well, you might just have more teams. I, I or, mean, people yeah. my age have seen it. Yeah. Right, the old VFA played for twenty odd years with sixteen aside you would get guys racking up massive possession tallies, but the game 
was always open. Mm. So AFLW sixteen side. Yeah, I, I I think it's a I I think things have got so dire in terms of the congestion. We have to really seriously consider that. Um, the other uh, the other one I think has to be considered is, um, and I, I, I sort of cringe myself saying it because I know what people will say, but this thing they're doing, the trial thing at VFL, whatever the new comp's called, of um, zones at boundary throw-ins yeah, as well as bounces or um, centre throw-ups, um, it's not going to have enough impact. Yeah. It's like 666. I said this. You know, it's not, I told you so. <laughs> but when 666 came in, everyone's saying, it's going to revolutionise the game. And I was going, well. It's only at goals. Why? Because it's only at goals. We're averaging 12 goals a side. There's 24. Mm. Throw in the four for the start of each quarter. There's 28. How long does a centre bounce take? At most, 10 seconds. Exactly. 280 seconds yeah. is how many minutes? Four and a half, four minutes, 40 seconds in a game that lasts two hours. Yeah. It's minimal. And, yes, the centre bounce looks great, but as soon as it's cleared, it's as you were. Yeah. So now you've got those four minutes, 40 seconds plus the throw-ins. Average throw-ins in a game, I think the last couple of years in a full-length game they've been 60-odd. How long does a throw-in take? Five seconds. 300 seconds, that's five minutes. So you now got a total of 10 minutes out of two hours in which zones will exist. It's, it's, I can't, you can't, (laughs) I'm doing a small gap between my fingers. It's nothing, it's chicken shit. Yeah. So it's got to be something that actually has a pronounced impact on a game for a pronounced period of time. But you know what? And here we are, here we are. I'm riding my hobby horse for all it's <laughs> worth because I've been going on about this for 10 freaking years and I cannot get anyone at the AFL to listen. I don't know why. I've brought it up with them directly <laughs> and every time it's sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, longer goal squares and six and oh. six. Here's what you do, right? I'm not saying it solves everything, but it sure as hell helps. <laughs> Watch a clip. Okay, follow these instructions, everyone. Number one, get on YouTube, drag out a clip of any match from 1980s and I would say even the early 90s. Have a look at it. Have a look how many players are allowed to congregate around a disputed ball before the umpire blows a whistle and calls the ball up. You will never, ever see more than about four players around that loose ball before the umpire blows a whistle, walks straight in there, and don't forget, had to bounce it. So that took up time. They don't have to do that now. They can just throw it straight up. Blow the whistle, walk in there, throw it straight up, forget the nominating Ruckman, obviously. No one cares if that gets scrapped. (laughs) doesn't matter. And clear the area. So what happens then is you don't have eight players from each side coming in while the ball continues to bobble about. Have a look at any stoppage to, in today's game. This is what happens. If the ball isn't cleared, a third, a fourth player comes in. It, they're still fighting for it. A fifth and a sixth come in. And then when it finally someone does get clean possession, they can't extract it because there is by now a group of 15 players around. Like it's not rocket science, is it? Yeah. You watch this clip. I, and I've written this piece 
and I embedded a YouTube clip of a game which demonstrated perfectly. Where can people check out the piece, just quickly? Um, I wrote it on Footyology, I think, a couple of years ago. How would you find it? Um, Go into the archives. Have a look. Yeah, yeah. But the clipping question was a Collingwood-Essendon game from 1985. It was just a routine home-and-away game at Victoria Park, and the ball squirts free along the ground, and Tony Shaw and Tim Watson come from opposite directions to battle for the ball. They get there at the same time. There's a bit of a scramble for it, and either one gets it cleanly. The umpire, whoever it is, can't remember, doesn't even wait for a third person to come in. He blows a whistle. He picks it up. He bounces the footy. Whoever is in the ruck or makes the ruck contest wins a tap. The ball is cleared. There are two people there over a disputable ball, and he calls a whistle. So, yeah, you're going to have more ball-ups, but you're going to have the ball being cleared more frequently. In the open more frequently, these 16 players who end up congregating in a radius of 15 metres are now more evenly spread across the ground. Now, that's about as good as, as good as I can explain it. Does that make sense to yeah. you guys? Yeah. yeah. No, that, that makes logical. sense. Can you, either of you guys explain to me why, before we try 16 aside or zones or longer goal squares or 666, why don't we try these tweaks of umpiring interpretations which don't require any change to the rules of the game and could help clear the congestion? Mm. I feel like, seriously, I'm getting mad t- talking about it. On Stephen Hawking, ears. Steve Hawking, if you listen to this, for fuck's sake, mate. He was an angry little bastard. I'm probably pushing my luck here. <laughs> he belted Lee Matthews. Get ready for an angry email. But, but seriously, like it's not rocket science. I feel like picking him up by the lapels and saying, just get the freaking umpires to try it for a few weeks. Yeah. I feel bad for the umpires because the rules are changing that much yeah. for oh, them. Oh, it's not and, their fault. Oh, it's yeah. not. like, And they get they cop so much shit for – but the AFL, like, the players don't even know the rules. How the umpires, like, but it's... You, but, again, sorry I'm being so animated about it, but the more, every time I think about it, so here we go. You know, six, we've had 666. We're going to have freaking zones. We're talking about getting rid of two players on the ground. The interchange, when I talk about piss farting around, that was the latest column I wrote about it. I said, <laughs> if the AFL's serious about change, stop piss farting around. The rotations... The average when we bought in the cap was had risen to 133. The cap was 120. Didn't notice a thing. Yeah. Then after a year of a year of that, or was it two years? They said, okay, we're going to bring it down to 90. Didn't notice a thing. It made zero difference. So now what do they do? Now they talk about bringing it from 90 to 70 to 90 to 75. How is another 15 rotations going to make any significant difference? An, an outsider looking at that, a person that doesn't know AFL, looking at that rule change in terms of the interchange cap, would just think that's the stupidest thing. Bringing it down from, uh, what was it, 120 to 90 to 70, like, and you know, And you know what, that, that whole argument, sorry, now I'm going to piss Kevin Bartlett off. <laughs> He wants interchange reduced to 20 or something. You're wrong direction, KB. There's not even any definitive proof that even greater levels of fatigue will open the game oh, up. Actually, I'd love to ask you that. So if you're a coach and just say there's only 40 rotations, 
what would you do to your players? Like, because you can rotate less. You'd probably have like 10 of them just in the back line correct. waiting there, correct? And then you just do what they're sort of doing this year with the shorter cores and then you just try and hold, 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 and then in the last quarter, that's when you make your move. Slows it down. And I've had that's, AFL coaches say exactly that to me. That's the first thing we will do. We will not be opening up and attacking more. We'll be stacking our defence. Mm. Yeah. Like, it's the logical thing that they would do. Like, And well, there's also... The, the clubs say they have the data which suggests that all it would do by causing more fatigue is cause more injuries. So then you get fewer of the best players on the park. So the whole that whole argument is contentious. What I'm saying, I don't think is – surely it's not contentious that by calling for a ball up quicker and allowing fewer players to congregate, mm. the ball will be cleared more easily. Like, that's a black and white argument. And I feel like adding on that, I think I discussed it before, by making the player just give the ball straight back, not holding it up. Like, that's the thing. Or the manning of the mark. Like, that frustrates me so much. I waste five or six seconds. Let's the team get back and defend. Like, that wastes so much time. No, no, it's you're, a frustrating you're right. thing. You're right. But and you it's know, not talked about. But, it, well, see, everyone's got their own hobby horses, haven't they? That's yours. I've just said mine. And what happens now is we've talked about it so endlessly for so many years <laughs> That every time I write it now, and I'm, I'm doing it again now. Yeah. In fact, you're culpable because I've t- given you a brilliant explanation of my pet hobby horse for yeah. clearing it up, and you've responded with yours. And that's what happens. Yeah. And I knew it was going to happen. I wrote this three weeks ago or four weeks ago or whatever, and I knew as I published it, I said, here, I tweeted it out. I said, here we go. I'm going to have in within 10 minutes, I'm going to have 30 notifications and 28 of them will be people suggesting their own. Yeah. And, and that's what happens, every response. Okay, Roko, here's what you do. It's this simple. Yeah. You get the Ruckman to dress up in a pink tutu, <laughs> you make him stand on his head for five minutes on a Wednesday afternoon. Simple, solved, you know, like, and because there's so many different mooted solutions now, the whole thing's become too... And people just throw up their hands and go, oh, God, not again. So to, to, to come back to the initial premise here, we have to decide if we really need to change a game. If we decide we really need to change a game and the kids of today and tomorrow uh, aren't happy with it and want it to go back to how it looked, we need to actually institute measures that will make a significant difference so that we can stop having this bloody debate. Yeah, and... Like, oh, I could talk about this kind of stuff for you for ages, but I do want to touch on some political stuff just before. Uh, <laughs> I have we, no idea about politics, so I'll, so I'll probably yeah. stay quiet. Okay. Just you right there can long. I just say, before we get into this, can I just, anyone listening to this who is one of the people who either on Twitter or Facebook tells me to stick to sport, this is the moment you turn off, okay? <laughs> but I would also say to anyone who says that, do you only talk about your jobs no, I don't only talk about my jobs. I'm very interested in music. I'm very interested in pop culture. I'm very interested in politics. Yeah. Sorry about that. I like talking about them. My politics are slightly to the left, not extreme. I don't think they're extreme. Slightly to the left. There is your warning. If you don't like it, bugger off. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you. Oh, I'm probably more extreme left than you, so I'll cop all the flack. I'm happy to do that, but... What, what I find, it's not more of a statement, not so much of a question, but what I do find interesting is that um, you speak about uh, on the rule changes, you do kind of want that more traditional style of footy, the style you got in the early 90s, like you mentioned, but 
in terms of your politics, it's conservative. Well, not conservative, sorry, progressive. Um, and I just find that interesting. Um, yeah. And like I said to Mark Fine, my podcast partner the other day in our own footyology podcast, he pointed out the fact that I liked a lot of hardcore aggressive music and then I, in the same breath, was talking about how much I love the program Sea Change. <laughs> Um, and he said, you're a man of contradictions. In a way, I am. But when you said that, the first person I thought of was my dad. Um, my dad, yeah, he was a journalist, but dad was exactly the same. He Politically, he was very progressive. Dad's politics were f- far more to the left than me. In fact, dad, my mum and dad, and I'm not saying this with any sense of embarrassment because at the time it was a different thing, my, they were both briefly members of the Communist Party. They're both certainly both very active in the ALP, um, very active in union movements. Um, my mum has had a strong lifelong interest in Latin American politics. Um, my siblings are heavily involved now in the Greens. Um, uh, I'm probably the least political member of the family, but Dad, yeah, Dad had very progressive left wing politics. But when it comes to came to sport. He was an absolute blue blood conservative traditionalist. Mm. And the best example of that was when World Series cricket happened, the Kerry Packer blow up. Dad refused to watch or let me watch any World Series cricket. We would only watch the establishment test brand of cricket, Um, which was fine. You know, like I probably missed out on some decent cricket as a result. But yeah, no, Dad loved the tradition. And the history of sport, um, but in politics, uh, uh, progressive. And that's, I'm proudly of the same ilk. Yeah. It's interesting. Oh, you just, I was just going to say, sort of like different people from different areas, like how they have their views. Because I know, like, growing up in, I grew up in Carlton and I'm um, just at primary school, it was just so much more progressive than when, where I am now in the Mornington Peninsula. Like, we had, like, um, Copenhagen, like environmental summits. We um we all they made us watch like the well, not didn't make us, but we watched the um Inconvenient Truth. And I remember the whole school stopped in two thousand eight to watch Kevin Rudd's sorry speech. Whereas I don't think they had that same experience down that down at the peninsula, which I'd say is probably more towards that conservative side. And it's just so interesting how I it's only an hour's drive away, but how different it, it actually is. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where to go with this. I mean, look, I. I tend to be a bit of a cynic and a bit of a pessimist, right? Um, but when I stop and think about um, the political landscape, one thing that really gives me hope for what I believe in is young people. Um, and I, I see it in you guys. I, I see it in my own kids. They're progressive. They're not radical, but they have a strong sense of social justice. Oh, 100%. I think if you ask any of my mates, I'm sure a lot of their parents were um, liberal votes, which is awesome and stuff. But I feel like a lot of my mates, you ask them what their biggest issue is, it's climate change, and a lot of them are sort of voting that way as a result. Well, I see it, yeah. No, it's a great example. But I see it with even basic things like I I don't think kids are racist. I don't think they're homophobic. Uh, My generation was as younger people and probably to a large extent still is. I think kids are great on things like that, even little things like, you know, my my son, uh, he has to wear glasses. When I was his age and went to school, if you wore glasses, you'd get teased relentlessly. Ah, Thor, I once asked him a couple of years ago, I said, has anyone ever 
mention your glasses too. He said, what are you talking about? You know, sort of kids are magnificently accepting of difference now. And and you know what? Uh, yeah, when I say you know what, I get off getting <laughs> my hobby horse. People like Andrew Bolt are so dismissive of, you know, progressive the education system, instilling them with these lefty ideas. No, they're not instilling them with lefty ideas. They are instilling them with a basic sense of freaking decency and that is the decency to be accepting of difference and accepting of people's quirks and recognising that we're all part we're, we're all part of one big melting pot and, yeah, it sounds cliched, but that's really how the world is. And you know what? <laughs> I can't stop doing it. This is, you know, Andrew Bolt wrote his incredibly bloody narcissistic, I'm leaving Melbourne, I don't like Melbourne anymore, and we're all supposed to care. We're, he bet he got the shock of his life and the entire Melbourne community said, piss off, Andrew. <laughs> but he doesn't well, – that's what struck me about it is that after living here for 40-odd years, he doesn't get Melbourne. And you know why he doesn't get it? Because he doesn't understand that sort of racial diversity. He doesn't understand um, the way that – I'm so proud – of people, my partner is from Broken Hill, and she she reckons I go bang on and on about Melbourne. She goes, "Why, why do you crap on how great Melbourne is?" And I say, "I'll tell you why, because I'm in my mid fifties. When I grew up as a kid, Mel Victoria was known as the jewel in the Liberal crown. It was probably the most conservative, traditionally conservative state in Australia, right?" We had a Liberal government here as a state government here for 27 years in a row until 1982. Since that moment, so over the last less than 40 years, I have seen the city radically change in terms of its racial profile, uh, in terms of its its cosmopolitan feel. Um, you know, you, you used to be – look, I'd like a little less traffic <laughs> – but, you know, on a Sunday in Melbourne, you know, you could, you could fire a cannon through the city. It was just dead. Melbourne is this vibrant, bustling community, you know, the, the whole coffee, cafe, laneway culture, the bars, the restaurants, the different ethnic communities that all established their own little shopping centres and cultural centres and we're, we're all able to go and visit them and they're proud of that. And people like Andrew Bolt see that as ghettos or whatever and, mm. oh, you know, it's, it, we should all be thrown in together. It doesn't work like that. But we all – we oh, God, sorry. No worries. We all learn um, – that was my alarm if anyone's wondering. Um, we all learn from each other as a result of that. And Melbourne, uh, I love the fact that we are now seen as the progressive capital of Australia because it's the most stark – Change from Something how it was as I was a kid, and we've grown, and I'm I'm really proud to have lived through that. Yeah, and like I I probably go to one of the most left wing schools in the state, or probably even in the country. Um, and it's when those climate change rallies happened last year, maybe the year before as well. It was like truly amazing, like the amount of young people like willing to take a stand for what they really believe in. I don't I don't know how strong that taking a stand um, kind of characteristic was uh, when you were growing up, but 80% of the classes that happened in my school um, during those climate change rallies just get cancelled because everyone goes. Like, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's fantastic. Look, it was 
It was funny because my my family was like that, but in we I grew up in East Malvern, which was a very traditionally conservative area and still is really where I'm I live in Higgins it's one of the safer liberal seats in the country um and we were sort of seen as the you know lovably lovably eccentric quirky family in East Malvern um but I at the age of five uh I can remember being taken by my parents to a Viet anti-Vietnam moratorium march and it was a famous rally in the middle of Melbourne in 1970, 100,000 people turned up and it was seen as being a very pivotal thing in the changing of people's opinions about the Vietnam War. I was there at five, you know. Um, I went to – I was taken, you know, by my folks and with my brother and sisters to a variety of protest marches over the years about, you know, nuclear weapons and – um, you know, various causes, uh, climate change more recently. I've been with my kids. That wasn't the norm around me. Uh, I did get in enormous trouble once in grade one when on remember. I still feel guilty about this. On Remembrance Day, you know, people buy a poppy. Yep. The Vietnam War is still going. This is 1971. And uh, I sort of got a bit too active and ran around telling all my classmates not to buy a poppy because the money they paid for the poppy went to um, buy arms for the Vietnam War. And actually didn't. It probably just went to help some poor veterans who were coming back from the war to get completely damaged psychologically, and I did get in a bit of trouble about that. But, um, yeah, I, I came from a political family in an environment that wasn't that political, but I, I love the fact that, you know, kids your age are doing that sort of stuff now and it, it gives me genuine hope for the future. And in a way, um, we need, sadly, my generation to piss off and let the kids have a go because we're clearly uh, not going to accomplish anything because, you know, our government at the moment is too beholden to vested interests of, you know, coal and, uh, you know, the gas lobby and the mining lobby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, that's the government and the opposition, the ALP. You know, the ALP politically now um, is about where the Liberal Party I grew up with was, yeah. if that makes sense. There's been both major parties have moved so far to the right mm. that the Greens are probably what the ALP used to be, you know. Um, and I, I was going to say this, that, yeah, look, I'm quite political I get really pissed off with a number of people in sport who say either stick to sport or you're an extreme leftist. I'm not extreme leftist. I don't champion any cause that is any more um, extreme than social equality, you know, equality and fairness. That's all I'm about. Yeah. If that makes me a social justice warrior, so be it. I'm proud to be called one, you know. Yeah. Um- but sport is a very conservative field as well. Yeah, just before we get to our very final segment, I've just got one last question and it's a bit of a broad question, but I was wondering if you've got a bit of a life philosophy or a principle that kind of guides you or a quote or anything that kind of <laughs> guides you uh, in the decisions you make and the actions you take in life in general. Um, you know, I, I probably haven't, but two things just sprung into my head. One is something I say to people – jokingly, 
you know, when I'm offering advice or whatever, or I want them to do something, you know, I, I do have a bit of a tendency to micromanage stuff, you know. So if I'm advising someone on how to do something, uh, I'll always say, don't fuck it up. <laughs> um, the other one is one I know my dad used to say a lot, and my mum still says, God love her. Um, and I, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a good – look, I tend to be a glass half-empty person, you know, or a, some would say a glass never had anything in it sort of person. Um, but I like the line, don't let the bastards get you down, you know, because – People can criticise you and you can have setbacks and stuff, but, you know, and this is a cliche, but how you respond to setbacks says a lot about you, about your resilience and about your capacity to to rebound and not be broken by something. And it's hard to do sometimes. I've had some shocking downs in my life. You know, I I really have. I've coped with Tragedy, you know, I lost my brother um, uh, at the age of 36. You know, my, my father, oh, you know, my father lived to a decent age, but I lost him. Um, you know, I had a marriage breakdown. I had a fairly disastrous relationship subsequent to that. Uh, she who must not be named. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but I'm sort of proud that I've I've been able to soldier on in a way. So, you know. Don't let the bastards get you down. You know, you, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. But uh, <laughs> going to a more lighthearted note, uh, Rowan. It's the part where I lose. <laughs> last time you came on the show, we had a quiz as the last segment. Do you uh, remember that? Yeah, I do. So we, we do that on every episode. but uh, I'm not that good on everything. <laughs> <laughs> so last time, I think it was naming all the premiers, going back in time. Just before you do that, do you know what, like, the I feel like that's fine because I've I've just about exhausted my voice box. We didn't talk about music. I've got three great staples in my life: sport, music, yeah. politics. But yeah, we I time. That. It's right there. I was <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Look, I'm okay. I'll sum up my musical taste. Uh, my family's pretty musical. My brother um, was a guitarist with Paul Kelly and the Colour Girls, Amazing Paul guys. Kelly and the Messengers. Um, very proud of what he did uh, with that. Sadly, no longer with us. Um, but, yeah, we I grew up listening to music. I got into Creedence Clearwater Revival very early. Um, so I've always been a bit of a rock pig. I had a disturbing sort of synthesiser period in the early 80s, but everyone did. We've all been there. Everyone did. Everyone did. Um, and, uh, yeah, funnily, my, my taste seemed to have got heavier the older I've got. Um, not necessarily the case now. I, I have tuned out of a fair bit of new stuff, but I love, I love Rage Against the Machine. I love a lot of those American grungy bands, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. Um, who else do I love? I love some. I'm big on American rock and a bit of cult. I'd love stuff. to know your favourite live show that you've been to because live music, yeah, ever. I know it's a tough question, but live music is such an important part yeah, of yeah. the experience. Well, it's I've, that yeah, I've, yeah. Missed it I've seen I've seen Rage Against the Machine three times. I've yeah. seen them twice at the Big Day Out and once at Festival Hall. Was the first time the best? Or uh, yeah, in a way, probably, because that's a funny story, actually. Sorry. I knew this had happened. Um, that is a funny story because, like, I'm a real rock pig. Their self-titled album came out in 92, and I used to do a bit of record reviewing and music stuff for the paper, um, particularly when I was on the Sunday Age, and the 
art settler sort of dropped it on my desk and I hadn't heard anything about them and I took it home and I put it on and I did that skip through the play the first 10 seconds of each song and virtually every song I thought, oh, yeah, so it's rap. I'm not into rap. Next, next, next. Um, And I sort of didn't listen to it. And then, I don't know, probably a year later, Killing of a Name started getting a bit of airplay and I thought, man, it's not bad, it's not bad. But it didn't, for some reason, inspire me to play the rest of the album. So Big Day Out comes along and uh, I'd read a couple of pieces about him in the lead-up to it. So I was by now I was keen to see them. Uh, so this big day out in 96, four years after this album has come out. And uh, anyway, so I, I got a good spot. You know, they weren't headlining or anything, but they, um, they had a reasonably prominent spot in the bill and got the, got in position early, got a decent spot. So they come out and they, I'm pretty sure the first track they played was Bomb Track, which is the first track on the album. So it goes, and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just going, oh, my fucking God. And then just song after song. And it got to the uh, the end of their set and I just went, I, I remember, I've got to get home and put that out of CD on. And I put it on and I, I my wife was there and she didn't come to the gig with me. And she comes out and she, I'm just standing there going like this. She goes, what's wrong? And I said, I've had this album for four years and never played it. What's wrong with me? And I, I, I was just hooked on them after that. I, I just, what is it about that band? They're political, most intelligent lyrics every any band's ever written, and angriest. Um, the fusion of funk and and metal and rap it works incredibly well, and no one's ever come within a bull's roar of replicating it. As musos, they are incredibly proficient at what they do and the rhythm section. I, I play the bass badly, admittedly, but um, Timmy Comerford and Brad Wilk, the, the bass player and the drummer, they are just in sync. They're like they are the one person. Mm. And uh, I, I just love that band so much. Some of the riffs are just... Oh, oh. <laughs> it's just, it's just uh, any time I hear them, you know, yeah. it's just how can you hear that and not start banging your fist or tapping your foot? Or yeah, if they made a song about footy, they'd be a perfect band. So. <laughs> well, they already are this perfect band. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's you know, funny you mention that. When I was doing a pay TV show on Optus Vision, um, you'll have to dig this song up. I, I used to, this guy used to do footy videos. And um, for the for the show, I was on football feedback, and I would bring in stuff and say, "What about this? Will this work?" You know, and we got quite into it. And I found this song by someone I liked, and he, I played it to him. I said, "What about this?" And he goes, "Oh yeah." And we were down for it. And then the boss, uh, who I won't name, but is still prominent in the media, walked in. and He said, "Nah, you're not using that. That'll just piss people off." Because what it was. It was a song by the Rollins band, Henry Rollins. It's like an American punk poet. Uh, it was sang in a band called Black Flag, who are a famous American punk band. Put his own band together, the Rollins band. Um, the song, it's off uh, 1997 album called Come In and Burn. The song is called On My Way to the Cage. Anyone who's hearing this, check it out. Have a listen to it. Imagine a footy video of punch-ups and heavy hits and tough sort of stuff on the footy field. It is the perfect accompaniment to it.
Yeah. Anyway, what a stupid digression that was. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I enjoyed that. That, that was, that was <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I love the passion. Maybe, maybe you can stick the song on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Great song. Yeah. Um, Probably don't have the rights to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but our final segment is okay, it's right. well known to our listeners. It's what they listen for. When we really dig to the core of what they listen for, they listen for the quiz, the Where Do We Begin quiz. So, guys, are you ready to get into it? 100%. Well, it depends what the subject matter is. So, we like to keep the quiz uh, vaguely related to our guest's career. Uh, okay. so, uh, so, I've done a bit of a uh, different one. It's, it's very general knowledge, I'll say that. Um, right. Done a bit of a different one today. So, can you just tell me when's your birthday, just to get us started? What, what the um, date? 5th of March. 5th of March. Okay. So, great day. Oh, yeah, it is a great day. Um, all the questions are related to the 5th of March. So... Uh, that, that's all that's connected to Rome, really. So it's a pretty general knowledge thing, but all related to the 5th of March. Hang on, how do you know my birthday was the 5th of March? I, I had to do a, do a bit of digging. I had yeah, to say, okay. you said, uh, uh, like, uh, it's my birthday today or something like that oh, on Twitter on the okay. 5th of March. So, okay. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Um, took a bit of research. But anyway, so we'll start with question one. Your name's your buzzer. So... Like we said, bit of general knowledge. So, question one is. So, sorry, your name is your. Your buzzer. name is your buzzer. Okay. Yeah, so just right. rolling a lucky. Question one. So, when the British Empire declared war on the Burmese Empire, a Southeast Asian country now known as Myanmar, on the fifth of March, eighteen twenty-four, the first Burma War began. But can you name a country that Myan- modern-day Myanmar borders? Uh, Rowan. Rowan. Um. Thailand. Thailand is absolutely correct. Bangladesh, China, India, Laos, and Thailand. I was actually thinking Laos. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was tough. too slow. Jeez, anyway, that question, was tough. <laughs> question two. Okay, so uh, on the 5th of March, 1965, the Rolling Stones is under the boardwalk, slash walking the dog, was number one in Australia. But 1964 is much more interesting if we're talking about the music charts. That year, the Beatles had a single at number one for the first 24 weeks of the year, 40 weeks in Rocky. total. Yellow Submarine. <laughs> Yellow Submarine is incorrect. Uh, so, Ron, I assume the question is what was the song? Uh, no. Uh, okay. Oh, okay, I'll keep going. Here are the lyrics to the single. Well, you're that, out because you got it wrong. <laughs> you are out. So, here, are the, here are the lyrics to the single that was number one. But what's the question? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to read the lyrics <laughs> to the single that was number one yep. on the 5th of March, 1964. Okay. Yep. And you just buzz in whenever you say it's all you, Ron. So uh, you've got a free hit at this. So it's a Beatles song, obviously. One, two, three, four. Well, she was just 17. You know what I mean. And the way she looked was way beyond compare. Uh, Rowan. Go for it. Um, when I saw her standing there. Yeah, I'll give it to you. It's, I saw her standing I there. I saw her standing there. Absolutely correct. Oh. Jeez, so. mate. You wouldn't have paid that for me. <laughs> Yellow Submarine, I reckon, was about 68 or 9. Yeah, that was, that was the movie, uh, wasn't it? It was part I went early. I thought, oh, I thought that one would have broken a few records. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, question three. Rowan's tune all up. So uh, on the 5th of March, 1983, Bob Hawke. Uh, defeated Malcolm Fraser in a federal election to become Australia's 23rd Prime Minister. After Hawke, how many Prime Ministers have there been? Rowan. Rowan. Um, okay, I need clarification here. What if the same person's been Prime Minister twice? Oh, we just count that person as one person. As one person? Yep. yep. So how many Prime Ministers since Hawke? Yep, 
Yeah. Okay. After Hawk. Yeah. Right, I'm going to do same. what his hometown was because I know that <laughs> beautiful border town. I'm going to do this progressively. All right. Go so um, Paul Keating, John Howard, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, um, Rudd again, but that's a one person. Tony Abbott, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, Scott Morrison, seven. Rowan Connolly, eight. <laughs> Fat chance. <laughs> Fat chance. Far too many skeletons in my closet. <laughs> it's absolutely correct. Three, Rowan's throwing you all up. Oh, mate, stop asking him questions <laughs> starting in the 80s. Actually, I do remember that vividly March of 5th, 83. It was a huge night in the Connolly household. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, question four. So this might be more suited to you, Lockie. This one's closest to the pin. So on the 5th of March, 2019, Forbes announced that Kylie Jenner – was the world's youngest ever self-made billionaire. So closest to the pin, how old was she at the time? Rowan. Rowan. Um, 23. 23 is incorrect, but it's closest to the pin, so I'll give Lockie a shot. 24. He's gone over. It's 21. Oh, no. Wait, did you say Kylie? You said Kendall, didn't you? Kylie. Oh, I thought you said Kendall. Wow. Jeez. What can I say? Rowan's Ro- pulled it up. She was born in August. Is Kendall younger or older? Yeah, Kendall's older. Yeah. That's I don't what, know. I, I wouldn't know. Talent was bloody hacks. So. Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> oh, actually, I thought Kylie was younger, but I thought you said Kendall. Gee whiz. I like stitched myself up here. <laughs> anyway, question five. But So Rowan's pulled it up, yeah? Yeah. But, look, he's still got a chance because- got this. Question five is a who am I question, and I'm going to go down from five points all the way down to one point with a series of clues, oh, yeah. and it's all leading to a person oh, as yeah, to right. who am I. So once you buzz in, yeah. you can't buzz in again until the other person gets <clears> it wrong. So we're going to start with a five-point clue. Lockie, you have to get it here to win it outright. Yeah. <laughs> I was born on the 5th of March, 1996, and raised in Romsey, Victoria. Should I move it on? Yeah. For four points. For the draw. Sorry, they were born on the 5th of March. 1996, okay. yeah. In Romsey. Yeah, in Romsey. Oh, raised in Romsey, Victoria. Not quite sure where exactly they were born, but raised in Romsey. Four points. I was drafted at pick 14 in the 2014 National Draft and was named in the 22 under 22 team in 2015, 16 and 17. Pick 14 in the 2014 Draft. Do you want to have a crack, Lockie? We'll take it to a tiebreaker if we get it here. I've got an idea, but I... Do you want to have a shot to win it 8-0? Might break some records. Um, I'm just thinking, should I play it safe and just hear one more clue? Do you feel like you know it? I'm trying to think. So, 20, so 24... I'm going, have a, I'm going to have a stab. Go for Rowan. it. on. Uh, Jake Lever. Jake Lever. He's correct. Bad. <laughs> you, you know how I worked that out? How, I, I got lucky. No, I'm lucky because I, I'm not a big. Sam Durden picked 13 in that draft. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I'm not a big um, student of the draft anymore, but I know there's a one time in my life I've been grateful for Brian Taylor because <laughs> he the amount he craps on about knowing Jake Lever and that Jake Lever grew up in Romsey. 
Oh, there you go. There you go. Anyway, it's led to an 8 0 win yeah, and a historic win for Rowan Connolly. That's better, that's better than my 6 0 win the other week. Oh, yeah, it is better. And I think last time we had an 8 0 win, Jackson was the other host of the podcast against Scott McDonald. But anyway, congratulations. They, they were good questions, actually. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> 8 0 win. So, uh, Thanks so much for coming yeah. on, Rowan. It was an absolute pleasure. It was. Uh, no, that was good fun. Um, I don't know how many hours we ended up doing, but um, no, no, I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Wow, how good was that? Rowan Connolly, we got about two hours out of him. Uh, yeah, filled with two hours of just great content, really. Great guy to talk to. Yep, just love talking about sport, footy, politics. It was so much fun. So thanks so much for doing that, Rowan. We really appreciate it. Now, yeah. Harps, do you reckon it's time to plug the socials? Yeah, I reckon it is. So you can check us out on Facebook at Where Do We Begin or facebook.com forward slash WDWB pod and, of course, Instagram and Twitter at WDWB pod. That is WDWB pod. And, uh, Lockie, uh, we're going to continue our music thing uh, that we've uh, started last week, we're going to be doing for this foreseeable future. So do you want to tell us a bit about the song that we're featuring today? Yeah, so it's from the uh, band Dreamworm and it's from their upcoming album, The Journey. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's the first single uh, of the upcoming album. They've got actually got a pretty cool music video. It's got like some dances and some uh, fire performers and stuff like that. So they're a pretty good uh, rocky uh, Melbourne band. I reckon it might be kind of similar to Rowan Connolly's style of music. You can actually check out the guys at uh, www.thedreamwormiscoming.com and all the links to all their socials, their YouTube videos, all their music. It's up there at www.thedreamwormiscoming.com and the song is called Transform. Just before we play that, we just want to thank you guys a lot for listening. Uh, Lockie, anything else to say? No, just thanks everybody for listening and make sure you recommend us to your friend, your grandma at Christmas, you know, the works. Yeah, exactly. Uh, recommend us to all your mates. And uh, before we play the song, here's Tom from the band chatting about the song. And after that, it's Transform by Dreamworm. Hey, it's Tom here from Dreamworm. Dreamworm started as a way for me to get out some of the music that I'd written over the years. We've just run a crowdfund campaign to provide the funds to record the second Dreamworm album, which is called The Journey. And we hit the funding target, so the album's going to be made. I'm incredibly humbled and thankful that people want to hear my music enough that they're willing to chip in to help me make it. And now that live music is starting to happen again, I'm really looking forward to getting the band back together and playing some Dreamworm shows in 2021. Yeah.
change and break. 